it's world-famous professional wrestler Cole Boom Boom Cabana here in my hometown of Chicago, Illinois, on a classic Chicago rooftop. Let's hope I don't fall off. I got a feeling I'll just be fine, just like Mike Bridenstine will be August 11th through the 13th when he comes back to his hometown. We're mad he left, yes, but he's coming back to his roots, Chicago, Illinois, at the Lincoln Lodge, the world-famous Lincoln Lodge from that one movie with Kumail. He's going to be there 11th through the 13th of August. On the 11th, he's doing his podcast. A comedian with a podcast, you say? Yes, he's doing it, and it's called Hunk, August 11th. And then the 12th and the 13th, he's filming his comedy special. Put out by a specialthing.com. Two huge tapings on the 12th and the 13th. Tickets are available at thelincolnlodge.com. I will see you in Chicago. I will see Brino in Chicago. And you will see me in Chicago on the billboards for one-hour teams. The summer heats in Chicago tonight. Not a cold wind to be seen. No more fear and isolation. The right says no more COVID-19. Laughter is howling, crowds flood the Lincoln Lodge in stride. Couldn't keep them out, even though they tried. He's coming in, Rido is back. Despite his face wasn't in the 1-6 attack. The hungry wolf is back to howl. Go to his show. You must go. You must go. Don't wait to buy tickets at the door. You must go. You must go. The Lincoln Lodge is going to score. August 11 through the 13th he'll play. Let the jokes roll on. The Cubs will be out of it anyway. From power moves to hunk, Bridenstine is all around. Chicago comedy, he knows the history about. Recording his album at a home base from his past. He's finally coming back, back at the lodge at last. You must go, you must go. Don't wait to buy tickets at the door. You must go, you must go. The Lincoln Lodge is going to score. August 11th through the 13th he'll play. Let the jokes roll on. Who knows, Bat Boy Derek might save the day. Mike knows like so, like the biggest names in comedy, dude. You gotta see this guy's fucking show list. He like has like the biggest names on uh, in comedy on his on his show. It's kind of unreal, Mike, how you do that. The best po- panel pod on the internet. And this is what the show's about, Nick. That we have our finger on the pulse of America's uh, trends. Hi, everybody. Hey. This whole day can suck a thousand fucking dicks. Yeah, boy. Welcome to Hunk with Mike. Brighton style.
From Muscatine to the Silver Screen. Wait, it's a podcast? From Muscatine, Iowa to your AirPods? Here's Mike. I'm Mike Bridenstine. Shout out Rick Gonzalez. Shout out Bad Planet. Shout out Joel Krausar. Shout out Colt Boom Boom Cabana. My unpaid announcer is Tony Tone Lokensel. Hey everybody, I hope you had a good fourth. I went off to the mountains and then came right back and did jury duty. Still figuring out my recording schedule, but this week I'm going to give you my interview with TJ Miller. I interviewed him for my book on Chicago comedy. It would have been incomplete without him. He was really hugely influential in my career and probably everybody that was in Chicago with him at the time. We just kind of scraped the surface on this. There's still a ton of questions that I'd like to ask him. If you don't know TJ, uh, for whatever reason, he starred in several movies and TV shows, including Silicon Valley. He won a Critics' Choice Award for that. Cloverfield, How to Train Your Dragon, Big Hero 6, Yogi Bear, the Deadpool franchise. He's also appeared on Conan, Jimmy Kim Alive, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. He's really stand-up specials on Comedy Central and HBO. He's TJ Miller. I think that you've probably heard of him. If you want unedited video of the conversation, if you want to see how the sausage gets made, if you want a video of every panel I've done since March of 2020, that is all on the show's Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash brido b-r-i-d-o there's a ton of stuff there there's just a ton of stuff ton of extras on the show's patreon uh the video i posted of my norm mcdonald story that i told tom segura is up to one hundred and nine thousand views on youtube this week i could monetize it if i get to a thousand subscribers so if you have time, subscribe to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash Mike Bridenstine. I'm not going to hold it against Colt Cabana. He's always just called me Brido. Los Angeles shows every Wednesday. I'm at the Fable in Eagle Rock. Mike Holmes and his wife Stacy are making burgers. They just got listed in Thrillist as having one of the 24 best burgers in Los Angeles. August 5th, I'm going to run my hour at the Glendale Room. That's in Glendale, obviously. So far, I have Lizzie Cooperman opening for me. I don't know if you've seen Lizzie live, but like maybe the last 20 times that I've seen her, she's been an unfollowable killing machine. And so to up my game, I've asked her to open for me. August 11th through the 13th, I will be in Chicago. The 11th, I'm doing a live episode of Hunk on my birthday. I think Marilee and Ali Drapos and Adam Burke and Mike Burns are on that one in Chicago. And then Adam Burke is my feature on the 12th and 13th when I record my second album for a special thing records. I hope to see you there. Okay, we'll get right back to the show after a brief word from our sponsors. What is the best way to handle the streaming wars? Judge all the content against each other. The Buffer Battle podcast does just that. Joel and Tony are former radio co-hosts who pit two relevant pieces of content against each other every week to determine the winner of the week. From documentaries to dumb sitcoms, these two will help you decide who wins. And at the end of each month, they throw it all into a no-holds-bars cage match to see who wins the month. Often joined by special guests, including your boy Brido, to help decide the winners. 
tournament style. These guys have fun making fun of themselves and keep their passions for film and TV alive during this podcast. Tony's a film nerd. Joel is a music geek. And they aren't shy about their opinions. Listen to the Buffer Battle podcast anywhere you download your podcast. Hi, this is Dustin with None Taken Podcast, and I have listened to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine. Hey, this is Alan with None Taken, and I also have listened to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine. And you clearly listen to Hunk with Mike Bridenstine, so maybe you'll like our show, too. We post weekly episodes recapping current events and sharing way too much of our tragic personal lives. Give us a listen. You can find us wherever you found Hunk with Mike, or go to our website, nuntakenpod.com. And now back to the world's greatest panel. Fuck yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> These guys fuck. <laughs> Thank you, Dustin and Alan. Those guys fuck. Thank you, Dustin and Alan. Man, those guys fuck. If you are new to the show, if you've never listened before, here's what you can do. Click follow. Give me a five-star review. Without further ado, here's T.J. Miller. Oh, shit. <laughs> there he is. And it, and it, Ooh. How are you? Good, man. Good. <laughs> I'm in uh, Colorado Springs. Oh, you did the fort? Uh, no, I did um, something called uh, Three E's Comedy Club. Oh, isn't that weird? It's it's named after the owner, Eric, and his two sons, Eric and Eric. And uh, worst name for a comedy club of all time. Three E's. You know what's funny is that my buddy Cash Levy, who I do the podcast yes, with. Yes, I met him. TJ yeah. Miller. Yeah. He, that's just a shout out for your Patreon peeps. To try oh, and I, get better, I better hit record. Then. I, I, better hit, I better hit record then. So, oh no. Recording in progress. Um. <laughs> So to answer your question, yes, I do have a podcast. It's <laughs> called TJ Miller. You've had that for you like get 12 years. Podcasts are listened to. Yeah. I'm playing this club, Three E's Comedy Club, um, named after Eric and his two sons, Eric and Eric. And don't pretend like we talked about this before. No, I'm, I, I am not Byron Allen. I couldn't think of his name or I would have come out quicker. I mean, I can't quick it up. It's still very funny. <laughs> Any Byron Allen reference is a reference of mine. Friend of, friend of a reference. Friend of reference. Yeah. And um, I thought it was the stupidest name in the world for uh, a comedy club. And um, uh, Cash Levy said, no, I think it's really cool. I thought that was weird. I don't know why I thought that was so weird, but it's just so cumbersome to say. Um, but I guess he thought conceptually it's better than like loonies. There's another club called loonies here. Oh, right. Crackers. Hoppy, hoppy, ha, ha. Right, right, right. Actually, I did something. I have a, a comedy special coming out called the Pandemic Special. Oh, really? Yeah, I did it at the Zanies in um, uh, Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, wow. And part of why I did it there for a couple of reasons. One, because it was one of the first places I started working. Because they were like, there's a pandemic. Everybody stay inside. And Tennessee was like, I didn't hear you with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's where D.L. Hughley got COVID and passed out on stage. So that's funny. But then also, their sign, Zanies, I was like, I just had this idea for a background. And what it is, I replicated the sign, but I did it with um, 
different fake names of comedy clubs. So it says like Zanies, and like all the signs go like this, and, like, and it's like Chuckle Bucket, the Ass Hat, Pun Comfortable Silences, Har Har's, like Crickets, like all this fucking funny ass shit. And uh, it looks great. Like I'm j- almost finished editing it uh, or doing notes on the edit, and it's. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What it's has like, better names, comedy clubs or improv troops? Well, are there any improv troops anymore? I don't. That's well, uncomfortable I, silences I, sounded like it could have been like a long form team. At yeah, uh, for sure, for sure. But I think um, I think comedy clubs because they're a little bit more abashedly corny. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. But I do like um, I do like some improv. I was always in improv groups that had shitty names. Heavyweight. Except, no, actually, well, I guess, like, long-form improv. Groups. Okay. So it was, like, at IO, I was in, they decided to make it Sturgis. Yeah. Like, that motorcycle rally. Yeah. So I was about. And then I was in a couple others, but now that we're talking about it, I did, like, some of the improv group names. I did a two-man group with brandon sorgenberger and that was called uh tanya's nail studio that was really funny that's a pretty good name and then um we were in it was nick vatterot mark ratterman and micah sherman and we had a group called chuckle sandwich chuckle sandwich that's funny yeah and uh but the one that i always wanted to be in or the name that I always wanted to use. Oh, and Thomas Middleditch and I did a show called um, uh, Practice Scaring a Bear. You did one with Pete called Gut Bucket, if I recall correctly. I, you know what's hilarious about that? That may have been the case, but I do not remember it, which means it was either terrible or we did it once and I was like, I want to leave. But, you know, Pete, Pete and I did, he was the first guy that we did some, stand up the two of us both on stage yeah and that has become a thing since with bumping mics and you know yeah the towel and and um and jeff ross and i think there's more you know blue collar comedy tour and that stuff but i had never thought of going on stage as a stand-up to do didn't bobby tisdale uh, and eugene merman kind of have a, that going before yeah that's right they used to open that's right bobby and him used to open but that was um I never kind of got in at Rafifi. I never that's did. Sort of I never story. did either. Yeah, that's sort of the story of my, you know, life in comedy is I never really has have been like, um, I you know, I never did a Judd Apatow movie. Oh. You know, I never, uh, I never, I've never been on Joe Rogan. There's all these things that are like really important milestones or clubs to kind of get in. The comedy seller I didn't play for a very long time and didn't really want to. Um, but I kind of have found other sort of groups and weird, uh, you know, people to work with that actually, um, that it really has worked out. If you look at my entire career, this is the weirdest thing. Um, I mostly, most of my success is due to Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg? Isn't that the strangest thing? So I was on this show called Carpoolers. For sure. It was on ABC. It was back in the day. And that was DreamWorks Television. And 
Spielberg and his wife watched Carpoolers, and his wife was a huge fan of mine. And he She's also in was, uh, Temple of Doom. I can't think of her name, but Cats, uh, Kate Catchpaw. Yeah, Kate Capshaw. Yeah. And it's funny too because my wife's name is Kate. So whenever Spielberg and I talk, I'm like, "How's your Kate?" It's like, <laughs> "Good. How's your Kate?" Um, it's very misogynistic in 2022, and I'd like you to strike this from the podcast. I'm no, <laughs> no, no. It's okay if you and Spielberg did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it is not. So, um, and uh, and so you know, I the first time I met him, he kind of was like, "You're really funny in that thing." And so then she's out of my league. Uh, oh, and he did notes on Cloverfield for JJ. That was the first movie you did, right? Yeah, Cloverfield. And then she's out of my league, which was the second movie I did. That was DreamWorks uh, produced. That was a DreamWorks. I didn't movie. even realize any of that. I just assumed. No, it... no, no, nobody would kind of. And actually, strangely, took me a really long time to kind of understand that he was sort of a great expectations kind of person in my life. Huh. So then. Um, so I did that. Then Transformers for Age of Extinction. Spielberg produces that. He's an executive producer on that. And he was the one I saw him randomly in New York City. And he was like, I'm trying to get you in the next one, Transformers 5. I'm trying to convince Bay to put you in it. And I was like, he's not going to put me in it. He got really mad at me for some joke I made on a podcast. And he wrote me this email. And he was yelling at me. And no, I don't think he'll talk to me. He doesn't want me in. And I was like, which honestly, that's okay. Didn't it's you just post a photo with him or is that made up? Yeah, totally. So, um, but so that, that relates to the fact that uh, Spielberg's like, oh, he yells at me, you know, and then he won't talk oh. to me for six months and he'll come around. And I was like, he yells at you. Yeah. And Spielberg's like, yeah. And then we kind of said some things and, and Spielberg goes, yeah, I guess I never really thought about him like that, but you're right. Because I had some insight on kind of him as a dude. And um, and yeah, he totally came around and now we're friends. And he's, you know, and before that, we went to, I think he tried to get me fired from WME before I left. And Spielberg uh, or Bay? Uh, Bay, Bay, Bay. So anyway, back to the, you know, so he was, he really liked me in Transformers and wanted me to do another. And then he bought, my like a movie pitch that i wrote with uh, miller davis called x criminals and i still want to make that but i'm not talking to miller right now uh sorry miller's not talking to me which is a bummer but um he so that might be hard to get that made um but i think i'll still i think i'm still gonna make it you know and um might just make the movie and put it online and like not make any money off of it i think that would be really interesting because then no one can like right. sue you or anything yeah it's just like public domain um but spielberg's company bought that and then he was like i was like so i'm working on that i want to do that and it was people were talking about putting me in office christmas party which is a dreamworks film and he said, I think you can do Office Christmas Party and write this movie. My wife loves that movie. My Kate. Her name's not Kate, but my Kate. <laughs> and in this, this economy, we call them all. Um, you're, you're in a very similar situation to me because your wife person is so much more attractive than you are. Just like beyond like it's confusing when you and i walk around with these girls people are just like 
Like, I don't, they either like those guys are so rich and those women are so vapid, but then both of our girls are like really stylish. Yeah. So they're not like, that's some dumb trophy white thing. Then they're like, what has he got going on? Yeah. You know, and little do they know, it's like, we're, we're, we're very funny. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's the whole thing. She doesn't even think uh, I'm very funny, which is even more confusing. That's not true. There's no fucking... That'd be amazing if she's the really funny one. She is. is like a make-a-wish thing. I'm the Danny DeVito in the relationship. It makes no sense to me even. She's the Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) I am... No, I think I actually like... uh, I think Kate is really funny. So... um, I don't know if I've met her. I don't... I, I... um, I don't think pop. so. And you know, it's weird. I think I was thinking about this before we were going to do the podcast. It's like, um, I think that, uh, Kate, Kate broke up with me, like right when you and I were starting to become friends and you were doing that writing club and that stuff. Oh, really? She's yeah, from because, back in the day. Yeah. Dude, I met her in college. Oh, we, and we dated throughout the whole thing, but it was, oh. I was in Chicago and we dated long distance for two years because I was saying I'm going to come to New York and I just kept not coming to New York. And so she finally broke up with me and said, like, call me when you come up here. But I want to have she didn't say this, but it's like I want to have a boyfriend here. You know, I'd like somebody who can take me out to dinner and uh, do other things. <clears throat> and so um, and so there's that. And so um, I uh, uh, let's see. So yeah, so um, uh, she and I broke up about two years into me in Chicago. And when were you like in Chicago on the stand-up scene doing it all? 04 to 07. Yeah, so I graduated 03 and she broke up with me around 05, early 05. Okay. And so we would have kind of been performing in the same circles, but like we actually kind of started to know each other. And at that point, I was dating like this like shrill little hilarious Jew that lived in New York City, and um, I didn't really have any like major Chicago girlfriends except for Jocelyn Hughes. Yeah, because I was just doing so much stand up. It just was not even. I did stand up every single night. You moved for, like, to Chicago in '03. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Did you visit? There's a very confusing video I saw of the Red Lion that Mike Olson gave me. And in the crowd is a young as fuck TJ Miller. And I'm like, my in my brain, I can't figure out why you are there in like 2001 or 2002. So one summer, either after my sophomore year or junior year, I visited Chicago. I think it was after my junior year. And I visited Chicago because I was thinking of going. And I took like... The, the lowest level class at Second City. And I wasn't able to do any other class. I think I did a, I might have done some sketch writing thing through Ali Faranakian at IO, but it was like, I could only take class at Second City because I was only there for like, I don't know how many, five weeks or something. It was like a, a summer and I did some fake, um, I did some kind of fake uh, writing um, it was like an academic thing. So I went there and I got free housing because it was an academic thing. Uh, but I barely had to do anything. And then I, yeah, I went and I tried to do open mics and stand up and stuff. And um, one of the places was the Red Lion. 
And I did one at the Red Lion where I, my friend still remembers this. He went to Northwestern. He came and I did one where I was doing a set, but I kept pulling stuffed animals out of my pants. I had like a bunch of stuffed animals in there and wouldn't really mention them. So that was like, I was trying to be super. And it's funny that Mike Olson had that because he's the, he's one of the most experimental of us all. Yeah. He was the guy that was doing stuff where all of us were like, that is so fucking hysterical and I have no idea why and I don't know what is happening as I'm watching this, but you're just cracking up. And I think what was cool about him is like, he was a comics comic, you would say. Yeah. He's also just a really great comic. I think that's really interesting. This girl I was working with last night was like, um, you're, you know, you're really a comics comic, I can tell. You know, that's what's cool about you. He's like, you're really funny, but you're a comics comic. And I just didn't, I've never thought of it that way, especially now that I'm a little less absurdist. Yeah. Um, or a lot less absurd. I, I just, I would, there, there are 25 people I can name that are more comics comics. The, you know, Who was the first person comics. you thought of? I thought of a tell first. I don't know why. No, he. I, people would say that too because he'll he'll play to the back of the room and the front of the room. Um, but I think Badaroff from our Chicago. Oh, world, yeah. I think he's a guy. But see, he's also just a great comic. But I think you can be both, doing, right? I mean, you can be both. You can be both, and but he was doing stuff when we were in Chicago that was um, really played to the back of the room. Yeah. So, doing the weirdest stuff of all time and yeah go ahead when you moved there in 2003 what was the kind of like the lay of the land like who were you looking at and being like oh my god that person is like the Kumail shit Kumail was doing his whole like <laughs> you know he, you know he would sort of say something and he had that kind of side look where he's like and uh just do the heroin heroin's doing the heavy lifting yeah yeah, just do the heroin. Uh, and um, so that was funny. And then, um, you know, I think Pete Holmes was really, really good at that point. I thought Brady Novak was really good. Um, Josh Cheney, because of, you know, the lion's den. Yeah. Josh Cheney and um, uh, Steve O'Harvey, of course, was they were like, to me, they were the luminaries because they ran this place. Yeah. Like most important room in Chicago was run by those two fucking guys and yeah. they were hilarious. Yeah. You know, and Josh She was doing weird stuff. He was always in a suit. Yeah. He had that joke where he the two tie the two parts of the tie and he had them race. Like he he rolled them up oh, and right. then he let them go. And then he could, you know, and it was too. And I think one time he took bets on it, and other times he would just and he had the 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 joke about the cats trying to talk and almost being able to like he could just tell they're like how about i do that i just yeah, yes. ask a question or one something so he because i would see him and he would do the same set a lot um that was uh you know that that was definitely like um hold on let me see notifications um and that was you know just those guys were just so they, they were so so fucking funny and they and then steve harvey of it all which is so 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 tragic that he passed away and you know i got to see him right before he died and it was not a situation where you would be like you're one of the funniest people i've ever seen you're so fucking amazing you're so great 
it's just not a time to be effusive and say that right, stuff. Right. Um, but he kind of knew because me and CJ Sullivan went there to visit him. We both visited him. Yeah. Uh, and it's so funny. This is when CJ used to drink. He drank. And, uh, and, and I was right there with him. And we kind of finished talking to him. And it was wonderful. His kid was there. And his wife is so incredible. And he was still being funny. He was like still, he was on the stuff. He was in his apartment. He was in the hospital bed in his apartment. And he still had jokes. And um, I think my my one of my most important memories from when I first got to Chicago is, you know, I didn't know anybody. I, I, I was funny, but I wasn't getting like huge laughs necessarily. I think the one thing was every week at the Lions and I would do something completely different. I would do a completely different setup. And um, which helped me as an improviser for sure. Uh, and Steve O'Harvey was the first guy who was like, what, what are you doing right now? You wanna go get some food? And I was like, oh my God, yes, of course. And he took me to a diner and you know, I was asking questions and starting. And I remember thinking like, I don't, you know, in general, I really don't get nervous, but I remember thinking like, this is a big moment. Like this guy's one of the Chicago luminaries, he's a Titan. And I'm sitting here eating hash browns with him. It's just like, oh my fucking God. <laughs> and um, he, he was just so smart, so knowledgeable and so nice. And then I said, well, you know, I'm in Chicago. This is just my summer break, um, you know, from college. And so I leave here in like two weeks. And it was so funny. He just was like, what? He goes, I mean, this is, so you're just a flash in the pan. Why am I wasting my time talking to you? And it was this really funny thing where he kind of was the first person. And you and I have given people this advice in a different way, hundreds of times. But he was sort of saying, oh, you're not in it for real yet. You know, I'm I'm looking to talk to a young comic. Uh, you're a tourist who's doing open mics. Yeah. You don't even live in Chicago. <laughs> and that was really cool of him to say because I didn't exactly get it at the time, but it, did, it definitely made me be like, all right, dude, if I'm going to fucking do this, I need to do this. This cannot be a... Uh, yeah, I tried it for a few weeks, then I left, and then I came back, and now I'm kind of getting back into it. But I already sort of had that work ethic because of um, your your recess. Um, I've been told that recess, like the the scheduling, was like insane. At, at yeah, Indo. that was a college improv troupe that I did in Washington D.C., and the rehearsals were ten That's to midnight yeah. Monday through Thursday. And if you're a college student and you're asking other college students to not party or show up drunk, like Ken Barnard uh, was so funny because that was a tough, that was tough for him every so often. He would show up and he was like really drunk and we'd be like, all right, Ken. But then he would, he would just take off his pants and kind of, and just have his dick out and be kind of chasing around like jokingly each of us it was just so funny he's just so fucking funny um but yeah that's a big commitment and then in addition to that you had to shoot videos write sketches and we had a show once a month sometimes more often than that and so a lot of your weekend was taken up during the day kind of shooting and getting ready but the biggest thing was we were improvising for two hours four nights a week so that's that's eight hours of just straight improvisation 
we would talk a little bit, but we would just get on stage and just do long form, long form, long form, scenes, 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 and then short form, short form, short form, bad ads, this, you know, the, like all these things. And that was just, to me, that was how you got good at, um, that was how you got good at um, comedy. Yeah. And so by um, Chicago, it seemed obvious that because I didn't have any schoolwork or anything, and I, you know, these day jobs were fucking Radio Shack and shit like that, that I would perform every single night. And then I would try and see, if I wasn't performing, I would see improv. And then I was trying to take classes in improv, which was during the, I was on the weekends for the most part. And sometimes weeknights, like Annoyance Theater, where I really learned how to improvise, that was um, weeknights at seven or something. So then I would do that and it would be seven to nine and then nine o'clock I try and go catch a late mic. How big and of a that, deal was um, Mick Napier while you were, was he considered like a genius while you were? At, he was Del Close. He was Del Close? Was, yeah, I mean, at that point, I didn't even know this, but he was directing at Second City. So the main stage shows, not even ETC, he did that, but the main stage shows, he was directing them pretty often. And um, the reason he was a big deal was to me was because he wasn't talked about at IO because that was the Del Close, that was the shrine to Del Close, was Improv Olympic, right? And at Second City, if you were just taking classes, there was another guy who was kind of the guru, teacher, person. I, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he was very, very funny. And, um, and then, uh, you know, real quick now that I'm thinking about it, Mike Olson and um, he does the Asian baby song. Michael, Michael Connell. Yeah, yeah, Mike O'Connell. So they did something called Midnight Bible School. But yes. that kind of ended before I possibly could have gotten in. Yes. But I would watch that show because it was in the black box at the top of the Second City building. Yeah. And that shit, those dudes to me were like Kane Collier, but 10 times as funny. I mean, really like, because they were more my style. Yeah. Kane was very improvisational and very experimental and performance art, you know. And it didn't matter if he got laughs or not. It was just, it was very spiritual almost what he was doing. And so the elevated to me was like, that felt within reach, you know? And I try, I would approach him and go, hey, I'm a new comic. I'd love to give you a VHS tape or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and it took a long time for me to be able to get in there. But Midnight Bible School felt like it was something else. It was like, it, it felt like Second City Main Stage, but of stand-up. You know, just, it was out of reach. It would be, and so it ended before I was able to really go there. But so McNapier was known to be annoyance. He, he was more known as like a rogue guy. He was sort of a maverick. He was, you know, not even near the beaten path. So I remember I was so, uh, I was so like surprised, just, uh, I don't even flabbergasted. I, there aren't even words for how absolutely striking to me it was that he was directing at second city when i heard that i didn't believe it i was like yeah sure mcnapier and they're like no no he's like one of the main directors there and i was like how why to me i was almost like why would he do that that is something that he's above yeah but that's the thing he wasn't above anything he was just so fucking smart and so when i took the class classes in annoyance with susan messing and 
when I finally got to McNapier, that's how I learned how to improvise. That was like the moment that I realized this is my style of improvisation. So I always tell people, I didn't really learn how to improvise that much at IO. I was on a team, it wasn't a great team. Although there are some fun guys in there that I'm still friends with, Batterot, Scott Rutherford's really funny. He wrote for Workaholics. Like there were Seth Whiteberg was in there. There's some like very, you know what? Later I got into a group called Bullet Lounge at IO. But by that time, Chuckle Sandwich doing indie teams at the playground. I was sort of gaining more from that. Um, but Mick Napier, absolutely, he was the Del Close. And I'm glad because Del Close was more like Viola, Viola Spolin. Yeah. Viola Spolin. And so it's still more theater. Whereas Mick Napier had gotten to a point where he's like, this is improvisation. The art that we're practicing is improvisation. And the only rule is stick with your shit. Be the first person to get out there. Go. Don't drop your thing. Don't make it work, even if you have to jam it together. And so in annoyance shows, you never see that thing where the two people come out and it's like, um, it's like, you know, one person comes out and is like, and the other person is like, so uh, what's for, um, what are we eating there? And the person was like, clearly like grinding something. And it's like, oh, I just started eating steak. And then the other person would be like, well, I'm a vegetarian. I mean, yeah, uh, and I'm a vegetarian. So um, I'll still eat with you. It's like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Why is this is the problem with improvisation? The whole audience is like, what's going on here? I wish they had written this. Um, But Mick Napier would come out and be like, what do we, you know, so what are we eating? I don't know. I'm grinding some fucking meat. So let's do it. Let's figure out what we're going to do with it because it's actually illegal because, and he's like, are you, did you use the fucking, the cow from out back of the farmer? And he's like, yeah. It's like, oh my God, I just had sex with his daughter. We're in deep shit. We got to figure out. And then you're in a scene. Yeah. You know? And so that was more the style. And I'm, uh, don't mistake that I'm not saying we would come out and be like, da, 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 da. It was because start out slowly. It's just, you made a decision and you stuck to it. And you did the yes and, but it was like, yes, yes, and. When um, when I talked to Kelly Leonard from Second City and when I talked to Matt Dwyer, he they who was at Second City for 15 years, they said yeah. um, they would both put Mick Napier above Dell. Yeah, 100%. Okay. Um, I begin now, I, I didn't study with Dell close, I don't know, but that 100% makes sense to me. Because Dell wasn't very funny is what I heard. But Mick was very funny. And then Mick and I kind of became friends later. Like I was invited to his wedding, which was a Twitch wedding, which was so weird during the pandemic. But, you know, I I think I also learned a lot from him because he didn't put much space between him and his students. You know, he just, he, he was so... Um, easygoing and conversational and everything was kind of a collaboration. I think that's also why he was so good. When you were in his class, he was collaborating with you to try and help how you could get better. And I I always remember the people in the second city classes weren't that good and they didn't get much better. And the people in the annoyance classes, some of them weren't that great, but they got good. Okay. And so that was really interesting too, but that was, but I was, as you can see from the stuff I said, I was just doing everything I could. I was just doing class at Second City where I would eventually tour 
Um, I actually have a really funny story about that. But um, I was doing classes and performing at IO. I was at the Playground Theater doing indie shows and indie sketch shows. Right, and we came about with Heavyweight, which is Brady Novak, Nick Vaderov, me, and um, Mark Ratterman. So I was doing sort of an independent sketch group. And uh, I was also working in Annoyance and trying to do some sketch there. But when I studied there, they didn't really have a theater or a home where they could perform. And then the entire time during this, I was doing stand-up every single night. Right. I've never taken a night off. When I've talked to Pete Holmes and I talked to Jared Logan, and they specifically talked about how you did crowd work. And it really resonated with me because I think Pete's theory and Jared's theory, and I guess mine, is that you changed the way that everybody in that scene did crowd work. And I want your reaction to this because like, it felt – the way that Pete talks about it is that um, – in the 80s and 90s, somebody would be like, heard it from the crowd or something like that. And then an 80s or 90s comedian would be like, looks like we got a drunk on our hand. And you'd go tit for tat with the person. Whereas it felt like you were going to attack their thought process is what Pete and I were talking about. You were going to beat that person by by going like, okay, so you thought you could get me by like saying that you'd heard a joke before. But Jared was talking about it and Jared was like, no, TJ would just do a scene with the person. What what were you doing? Do you know what you were doing or you just did it? No, I you know, I absolutely uh I mean I was learning from myself what was working. And it's so funny that Pete was like, this changed the way that this this because Pete uh when his book came out, he was like, You get name checked in there. There's <laughs> like you did a couple couple name checks, and I was like, Oh, cool, thanks. And then I read the book. Um, not all of it, but like I read the book and, uh, and it's like TJ Miller was there in all his improvisation. Wait, it was like, that was back when TJ was in all his improvisational glory. It's like some weird backhanded compliment. Like that's when he was at his prime. That's when he was really something else. Um, but that's kind of very Pete that sort of works exactly with kind of Pete. Um, but what I think I did was I was such an improviser and that was what I started as. And that's what I studied in college that I was able to do a scene and I still do this now, but the idea is to uh, recontextualize their behavior. And so one technique, cause you're right. What they would do is you'd have stock lines for hecklers. Right. So, Hey buddy, I don't go down to your work. I'm going out to your job and slap the dick out of your mouth. Right. Okay. Right. And those were the ways that you handled it, but you shut it down and then you're back to your jokes. Right. So my thing was my jokes sometimes would be meandering or I'd be improvising. And so I couldn't shut somebody down and then go back to these formula jokes, set up punchline, set up punchline. And so what I did is I was just, I would run with it in one technique, which none of these things were things that I like wrote down or something. But one technique was, I would say, um, you know, it is just an example, but oh, you must be a really good father. You know, <laughs> this would be great. The kid comes home and it's like, dad, dad, look what I, look what I drew. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen better giraffes when I draw them accidentally in my sleep. <laughs> this guy fucking sucks. Let's get another round. Like, and so it's there and then the kid would be like, yeah, dad, why did mom leave you? And he's like, what did you say? And he's like, oh, I know why. Because <laughs> you know, I walked in on you and mom and you had your pants down and she said, seen it. See, I've seen bigger, my, you know. 
And then I'd sort of make this scene and that would have, there's too much going on there for somebody to be like, hey, yeah, fuck you, man. My wife didn't do, it's all fake. It's all hypothetical. It's not, so there's really nothing for them to try and jump back into. And to this day, people really, they yell at me less now because in their minds now, I am a huge celebrity. And then it would be kind of a little, but they still yell. Yeah. I, I've always said this, I have a face or a demeanor or something. Also my size, I think is part of it, where uh, people just feel like yelling shit at me. And then once <laughs> I handle somebody and it's funny, then other drunks are kind of like it. But the problem that I had since I've been doing stand-up kind of full-time, and I always make fun of this, is that people will yell something, you know, they'll be like, nice shoes or something, but they'll, they, they're scared. It's like, nice shit, man. And I'll go, what? And they won't say anything. Yeah. I mean, Dude, what did you say? And then nothing. And then, I've, then I have stock lines. Then I have a joke where I go, Oh, great. Thank you so much. Well, first of all, let's let's establish a new rule. If you yell something at me and I say, what? Don't go, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't answer. I don't speak when it's customarily appropriate to speak, for instance, in response to a question. I only speak when a group of strangers has come together and tacitly agreed to sit in the dark while another stranger speaks of your device, you know, to amplify the voice. Oh, that, that's when I talk. And so then, so I do that. And, but if I do get into it with somebody, um, the thing that I think, because Nick mentioned something about this, I think he might have uh, read a draft of your book, and, but he he mentioned that I wouldn't like be vicious with anybody. Right. And that I realized never served me. It's also not who I am. Like I'm I'm there. My entire mission statement, uh, you know, is that life is like fundamentally tragic. It's like horrible for everybody. It's horrible for the guy that has no legs and is asking for money in the street. It's horrible for the billionaire who's lonely and will never know or find love. It's horrible for the guy who works at the Walmart warehouse, a forklift, because he's got a he doesn't really have any education. He doesn't have any motivation, but that's not his fault. It's his parents' fault. It's just pretty fucking hard to be a human being. And the best thing that I could do, because I studied psychology with concentration of persuasion theory and social influence, but I could have become a therapist. And I just felt like if I was a psychologist or a therapist, I could fundamentally change someone's life maybe in my entire career 500 people but like change their entire life right you now for the right. better for the positive or i could do comedy and change millions of people's lives but only for 30 seconds if it's commercial or an hour and a half if it's a movie right, right. or an hour uh, it, or 45 minutes if it's stand-up comedy or for 20 minutes if it's an improv set and to me, because philosophically, I study John Stuart Mill, who's a utilitarian, which is like whatever makes the most amount of people the happiest is the ethically right thing to do. So in his mind, you kill Hitler. There's not even a question about that. Because the murder of Hitler and how it affects his family affects millions of people and it makes them happier and they're like better. So they, then you kill that guy, right? Right. And so that formula says the more people I can make happy, even if it's a little less happy, is much better than only making a few people really, really, really happy, you know? Yeah. And the other thing that he, you know, the other thing about John Stewart Mill So you direct that, Second City Main Stage? What? So you direct Second City Main Stage if you're McNapier? Yes, exactly. Yeah, 
Exactly. Because, and I think he, but he had, he had before he said, I don't like directing movies because he directed Exit 57, I think it was. Yeah, he did. And he, he sort of always was begrudgingly directed Second City Main Stage. You know, he kind of, he was never like, yeah, yeah, I love it. Oh, it's great. What an opportunity. And that's not his, that's not his style of comedy or anything, but he was. But Paradigm I, Lost was like lauded and like. Uh, yeah. And I think and Strangers with Candy, but Strangers with Candy is a, a television show. He, yeah, he did. And you're right, Paradigm Lost, you know, that was one of those shows that they talk about. Yeah. And um, uh, Brian, Galvany, Brian G was something, but he did the Cancer Coach uh, sketch. And I'm not sure Mick directed that, but that was like Paradigm Lost level. It was where uh, this like father who's a coach of a football team i actually tearing up thinking about oh it. really it was came in and his wife has cancer and it's terminal and he gets in there and he's like we gotta fight this thing we're gonna go and he's sort of acting like a coach and he's like who's gonna go like give me a seat give me an a give me a C E R. who are we we're gonna beat him beat him and he was doing all that stuff and then the wife kind of slowly calms him down it's like i'm gonna die and you kind of need to stop thinking that we can beat this thing. And it was like so funny. And then you would just, everyone was crying. It was crazy. I'd never seen that. And so seeing that made me rethink, that's how I got to writing Successful Alcoholics and Difficult Time Killing My Parents, which are the two shorts that I did that went to Sundance. Yes. Because then I started to realize, wait, it is possible to do what I want to do, which is, uh, is, I don't call it tragic comedy, comedy of substance so you're doing this comedy and but there's an underlying thing that is really real really you know substantial in terms of how real it is and how sad it can be that's chaplin right that's charlie chaplin yeah it's you know it's the kid yeah and uh it's city lights yeah both of those those two are like the best examples of those there's ethos in like everything that he does yeah totally but those two films, I think he got it right perfectly, you know, and he was in a situation where Harold Lloyd and Buster Keaton were doing death defying stunts. Yeah. So what they were doing was making people laugh, 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 and then go, <gasps> and then break the tension, laugh, laugh, laugh like that. Yeah. But um, Chaplin, this guy, Harry Langdon, Harry Langdon played sort of a baby and naivete and sort of almost an asexual character. So he's confused by women and they would chase him and he would run away. And you always felt like it was it was there was a sadness to the fact that he couldn't figure this thing out and he didn't he was put in a position or a place that it just it was not ever going to work for him and so that was i i watched a lot of him because i did an independent study in silent film comedy in college and so i learned a lot about that world and you know a lot about that i mean i consider you one of the guys that's like a real student of comedy and I think that's important too. And there are a lot of people that kind of didn't do that. And I think you can sort of see it in their comedy because it's more derivative because they have less to pull from, you know? You had you always would have silent movies on when I would, whenever you would have a party at your house, yeah, like yeah, yeah. right by Nick's Uptown. Yeah. <laughs> There's that one was thing. The thing. I still do that. I think that's the coolest thing you can have on in the background. It's awesome. I got I went during the pandemic through like a pretty major Chaplin uh, kick and I had like this the foremost expert on Chaplin on on the show just because like it was fascinating to me. Like, really? Yeah. 
Oh, that's awesome. I gotta, I'm going to listen to that right after this. That's he fucking will, great. He will talk your ear off, that guy. I wanted to make sure I asked you, um, there's like this lore question that it's about Hannibal and uh, and an argument that you got into with Geary about booking him at the lodge. Does this ring a bell to you? Not at all. And I want to say, too, I have I have some time. But if you want to do another podcast, I would love to. OK, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we because this also I was like, I want to get this in and we've just not connected. So yeah, yeah, time. yeah. Yeah, I have, but, a, th- I have now, a billion questions for you. Yeah, well, and I think the other thing is, and I don't know if it's cool, I have, like, all these questions for you, because it's so weird that we were now so far away from that time, but it was so pivotal. Yeah. We were all so close. And I still think, I think it's interesting, too, that, like, if you were in that Chicago war zone, and I remember thinking that you and Mike Holmes kind of made these war rooms of talking about comedy and thinking about comedy, and whenever I, just even a few times, Whenever I was invited in or went and did it, it just, it was, I blew my mind. Cause I was like, this is a different way of writing, a different way of thinking and a different way of supporting your fellow comedians. Because for me, stand-up comedy, the fellowship was you get ready to do your set, you have drinks, you do your set, you watch other people's sets. And then afterwards you drink and you talk about the sets. <laughs> you would never involve anybody in your process. And the only person Oh, I completely forgot Robert Buscemi. Buscemi, yeah. Me, Buscemi, and I remember he, I saw him once at the Lion's Den, and he would type and print out his jokes. And I couldn't even imagine doing that. Because the, the furthest I would go is write an idea down. And then I would work it out on stage. But I, I, would, I, you know, I would write some stuff beforehand, but to actually write the wording of the joke didn't seem to make sense because how could you know if it works or what to do until the audience is like, and that's what I do today. It's like, I get something that I love and then I just go through and I like, I just keep saying it until I've cut it and formed it. And then it's like a bit and then it stays in the act. And then you're reminding me when Robert was complimenting John Roy, one of his compliments was that his comedy was so precise. And then he said, and I mean, word for word. Like, so that was like a thing that was like important to him for some reason. At, at that point, well, because that's more of the comic that he is. Yeah. Whereas for me, Nick Vatteroff yeah. was the zenith because he did something similar to I, what I did, which was just every time you do something different, you try every single type of thing. So John Roy, though, then was such a good comic. But to me, he was a working comic. So yeah. he wasn't even in the scene in the way that other people were. He was going up and doing uh Bert Borth's room yeah you know the comedy wagon circle or whatever the fuck that was called and he was like he was working he was like a road comic so I when I saw him I didn't see a comic on the scene I saw a working comic who was coming just to rehearse material were you there when he won Star Search or no no that was I think before me and that's part of why yeah I mean that makes I sense. Think, I mean I might I might be wrong on that, but I just remember that it was like early '03 that he won it. So I got there right after that. Okay. And so he probably at that point was like really working because imagine how much fucking road work he got from that. Um, so I didn't see him around a lot in the beginning, but Buscemi was great. He's the only guy that was like, "What do you?" Because th-? I think he also thought I was really weird. He was like, "What do you think of that that joke uh, about?" Um, you know, the butterfly or something. And I, I was like, oh, it's funny. I had an idea about that. I went on stage 
and I did it. I'm just saying exactly right because it was a while ago. But I did it. And the idea was that a butterfly, I saw a butterfly coming out of a cocoon. And when he came out of the cocoon, I put another cocoon over him because fuck you, butterfly. You know, just like that was the idea. And he was like, Can I have that joke? And it was such a funny thing where I never had anybody ask me that. And I didn't think it was that weird. So it's like, Yeah, sure. And he said, for years, he said he, that joke he got from me, and he got one from Pete Holmes. The penguin. Yeah, if you slice a penguin, it just seems like there would be more penguin. Yeah. Or just, you know, guts or anything. Yeah. Uh, so that that makes me laugh also. But as far as the Hannibal, um, Ricky Carmona also, I mean, all these guys, you know, you say, who's the first that come to mind? Yeah. But like Ricky had this energy yeah. that I just was unable to imagine replicating he just the second he got on stage it was fun yeah and he did i don't know when he did it in my time there but he did he would do sometimes he'd go up and he would he would just sing he would just like you know he would put on a song and it was a good song and he would sing along with it and it was so funny because the audience was like wait he's not doing stand-up but damn i love this song man this guy's cool and then he would kind of go into his stand-up and he had built such goodwill with the audience that they were really excited here. And then he's really funny. Yeah. So it was kind of, he would double bang it in a way. He had this one-two punch of let's have some fun. Let's change the energy. I'm like you. I like to have a good time. And now, wham, I'm hilarious. I've got, I've got jokes. I'm not just up here dancing around doing my thing, which now uh, on the road, everybody says that that's, Carlos Mencia does not the poor man's job, the destitute. He's the destitute man's Ricky Carmona because he doesn't even really do bits anymore. He just talks to the audience, plays songs, does karaoke with the people on stage, like goes in the audience, makes fun of people. Wow. So, he, so that's what I always respected about Ricky was he had this energy that he brought in the beginning and then he was a really fucking good comic. He would do and Celebration by Kanye and he would do... Uh, the Percolator song. Percolator was the one I remember. Yeah. Percolator is so funny. It was so, so funny. And, you know, he kind of picked songs that everybody knew and loved, but you hadn't listened to in so long. <laughs> so he's good like that, too. That's why he's like a really good DJ and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, as far as the Hannibal, uh, whatever the folklore that was, I don't remember that at all. Do you remember liking him before other people did at all or anything? Or do you remember early Hannibal at all? So yes, and he wasn't funny. He and hates that, us. He fucking that. showed up at Checker Hall to confront me over what I had written, what I had reported about him in this thing, because I sent him an early copy of it. And <laughs> he did eat shit all the time. And here's the thing that I think is really funny. He's a fucking rapper now. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What is he That's your move. People say? He's being like, man, fuck comedy. I'm a rapper. I'm like, okay. Well, but what I'll say is, is I think I'm sure I don't know what he's like now because I'm cool with him. I've seen him around at some point and I've like texted with him. But what I remember about early Hannibal and why I remember this is that the only person who did as many sets as me was him. And then Nick would do yeah. as much comedy as me, but he would do it in the same diversified way. So he was doing sketch, stand up, improv whatever you know he was but Hannibal was strictly stand-up yeah so what would happen is he and I would do two stand-up sets right at like comedy open mics yeah and then we would go together 
often I would be following him and saying, are you going to hit a mic after this? He's like, yeah, there's a music open mic. And so I would go to the music open mic with him. Yeah. And there'd be like five people and they'd all be drunk or whatever. I remember this one place we went to, he had kind of said, yeah, man, I like it. You know, um, it, this it, it's, it's in the same story. It doesn't really matter. But he, I'd be like, so what have you been doing lately? And I'm at what material? And he was like, just bombing. And I was like, bombing? He's like, yeah, I love it. I was like, what do you mean you love it? And he was like, I mean, I do these music open mics. It's great. It's like five people and like some drunk. And I go up in between like two guys doing John Mayer acoustic stuff. And that fucking blew my mind, obviously. But then I remember exactly this one open mic that we went to. And it was like he had prophesized it. You know what I mean? He had like, um, we went in and it was five people and one of them was a completely drunk guy who was like, uh, what, are they doing? what are you talking about up there? And we, he went up after a John Mayer guy and then somebody went up and did another like almost John Mayer song. And then I, um, and then I went up and I, of course I bombed. I mean, it's just, you could not do well there. So I think why he was angry is because he was terrible, but he was still funny. So you're saying we knew none of us, none of us were like, dude, that guy should stop doing comedy. Right. There's something about him. He was this black guy with glasses and incredible faculty of language who really was funny. But some people said he was really much funnier off stage. And some people said he wasn't funny at all. And then he went away for a long time and he came back and suddenly he was hilarious. Yeah. But I just remember him of having, you know, I'd see a pitch perfect work ethic and one that was almost the exact same as mine when it came to stand up. Uh, you know, he would do, he would just, he was like me. He would do three sets on a Tuesday, two sets, two sets the next night, go to a show to watch. That is a show, you know, I would do the same thing. It's a show that we couldn't get up on, but we watch comics until the 10 o'clock open mic started. And we would know that comics, they don't really like comics up until after 11 because the singer, the, you know, the singers and the guitar players and all that kind of stuff, they go first. And, um, and so that's kind of what I remember, but I can't imagine that I went to Mark Geary and was like, I don't think you should book Hannibal. No, no, no. You said you were the only one fighting for Hannibal. That, that I remember. Okay, yeah, I that's thought, the story. Thought, the opposite. No, no, the opposite. Was like, hey, Gary, don't you get this piece of shit off the fucking No, stage? like the story that give Mark giant, tells give that. Give him a giant beer and send him on his way. <laughs> Maybe let him play fucking video poker beforehand. But get him the fuck. No, I'm positive. I don't remember exact, but I'm positive that I would have gone to Gary and been like, this guy is he works so hard he'll do so well in this room he's got to be a part of this part of the scene because as you remember for all of us the first step and in some ways the most important step was getting booked to the lodge yeah 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 because the zanies wouldn't book anybody right and it wouldn't it wouldn't matter anyway because no one you knew goes to zanies because none of us were allowed to go and watch one of our friends do a set and the other rooms like the elevated and you know, which would become cherry red, but they just, the red lion, you know, a lot of the lion's den was an open mic, but yeah. it was the most important room 
uh, I'd say, right beneath the Lincoln Lodge. And the Lincoln Lodge was like a produced comedy show. Yeah. Hello? Oh, no, that's okay. Um, You know what? I'm trying to just talk about the history of Chicago comedy when I was in the scene, so specifically like 03 through 05. And we're going to do that for another half an hour, so could you come back? Okay. Okay, thank you. The Lincoln Lodge was... Yeah. I don't think she would know. Um, but uh, that's such a specific answer. Yeah. Do you want, do you want rooms? She's. Do you want I rooms think you should get to 07 because that's when you got carpoolers, Tej, is what she said. <laughs> and then she's like, Spielberg, by the way. Not a lot of people know that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I definitely would have said that because I could see Gary was really. Um, how would you, what would you say? Close to the chest about who he was going to book, what it was about, who was good enough to do it. And, you know, it continues. He, he sort of now has the kind of comedy club and everything that he wanted. Mm-hmm. But for years, it was him doing tech and he could never figure it out and running around and being so, like, harried was the adjective I always used for him. Yeah. It's like, he was here. well, we got, we got to get this thing started. But the Lincoln Lodge also, it was like cool. Like you walked through a diner, it was a secret room. The beers were like this big. And I remember thinking like, this is really cool. And the bar next door had Malort. And so, you know, if you wanted to go drink hard afterwards, there was like a funny bar. And it was on an intersection. It was really interesting because it was on Lincoln and what was that, Irving? Irving and uh, Lincoln, Irving and Damon? Yes, exactly. So it was also... It was a little um, west from the other stuff that we were doing. And in the beginning, I lived in Wicker Park, like Wicker Park, Bucktown. Yeah. And so that was another thing is I could like go pretty easily and see the show. But I also was not a guy who wasted. If I could do an open mic, I would not go and see a show. So I didn't see a lot of Lincoln Lodge shows for a while, but I kept trying to get in. Ah. Yeah. So I think... It took me took me the better part of a year to even get a guess at there. And I don't think I did very well. At Lodge, you didn't? No, I don't think so. I think he might have booked me again anyway. But I remember my first time afterwards, I was like, I don't know that I'm going to be booked for a while. And I don't think that I was. But then, you know, then I gained some momentum. and was I had like a set that killed um with my four person bicycle closer <laughs> uh, gay wad a wet clump of homosexuality that's right exactly so i had enough of those brilliant tidbits <laughs> um and uh and so then i then i had a, a set that would work and so and also once i started playing there he understood that i like would try something new but also kill so there was no i was never going to be a guy that was like who cares how this goes and that might have been why that would be a reason that Gary would say, I don't think Hannibal's right for this room because he doesn't give a fuck about bombing. But I think that's what made uh, that's what made Hannibal so successful is he had this like Teflon confidence, not necessarily in what he was doing, but just in the fact that it did not matter what people thought about his know, uh, It was so much more about the work and getting the work done and going again and doing another one. But you don't have any specific memory of that argument, like that you fighting for him or anything like that. Okay. Do you remember the set that he did that um, when he finally did the the lodge? No. I guess he fucking destroyed is the is the 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm positive. But here's the thing. They didn't, the, some people worked for the lodge, like were in the lodge. I forget what he called it. The cast? Like, yeah, the lodge cast. I never did that. You and didn't? So, no, I don't. Th- I mean, I think, you know what it was? I was like, I was like, I'll help out whenever I can, but I'm so busy. Oh, uh, okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I could see myself being like, Oh, Hannibal's at the Lodge. That's awesome. But I have two shows I'm going to do. Okay. <laughs> two open mics that I need to go and do. Right. If you weren't there. So basically, yeah. what I'm saying, Brad, is I'm a bad friend. I was a bad friend. <laughs> no, you're saying. busy. You're a busy I performer. A selfish, I was a selfish bad friend. Um, um, oh, there's one set I want to make sure I ask you about during this one because um, it's earlier. There's a set that Logan brought up, and I have such a specific memory of it. It's a Lion's Den set. One of I want to say Jen Slessor's friends of a lesbian comedian. You had casually. Oh, I love Jen Slessor. She was so nice to me. Yeah, she's great. Her friend, I believe it was her friend who was a civilian, ran up on stage during your set, and you proposed marriage to her. And it's probably the hardest I ever saw anyone kill there. Do you have any memory of this? So Batterot talked about it to me, and. I do, but I think I've created it since being reminded of it. <laughs> I can do those memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Um, no, but, you know, now that it's mentioned, I do. I remember kind of she came up and she did that. What's weird is I've done. I've married a couple people since then. I have proposed marriage to a guy on stage. These are just like if it makes sense to just – do something that if that just comes to me and it seems funny then I will just absolutely do it but yeah I kind of remember the thing that I remember is that I would absolutely have done that and of course it killed because people are like is this really happening like no other comic is is this actually happening yeah and the one that I remember though and the one that I think Nick Fatterot and I became friends after the set was I dress, I bought army fatigues that afternoon and I think a fake gun and it, they called me on stage and from the back where the, where the friars were, like that little hallway, I literally army crawled on the ground of the bar all the way up and up the stairs and Josh Cheney, I think, was up there. And I was like, go, 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 get out of here, go. And Josh was like, okay, he left. And I came up and I pretended like there were snipers everywhere, but I was there to tell jokes. And so I would sort of, you know, fire the fake gun and then climb up the pole and say, hey, you know, wait, do you ever notice that uh, it seems like everybody in Chicago is like, all the, they already ate an Italian beef sandwich and they're on the way to eat Get out, get out. You know, I do that. And so, and it wasn't funny. I, I think people were just like, this is the really, really a weird thing. It got some laughs for sure. But I remember Vatteron after that was kind of like, he didn't say it, but I could feel that he was like, dude, you're really funny. Like you are way out there. And by that time, both of us had recognized that he had never done the same set and I had never done the same set. Yeah. So we were really the only guys that were coming and doing a completely different set every that single was- that was intentional. You knew that you were also like, did you have like a OCD thing like he did or did you were, you were just like never repeated or how did, like, how did you plan that? I guess 
I didn't know that he had OCD. I'm not sure that he he knew that he. He had told OCD. me that like recently, but yeah. no, 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 because now he knows. I just uh, I performed with him in Houston like basically last weekend for my birthday. He he decided to come out there, which was so cool because he still had he had to like do Bill Maher stuff uh, Friday during the day, um, but then he performed with me in Houston that night, and then Saturday night and Sunday night, and it was oh god, that's so fucking fun. But, you know, now he knows that he has OCD and he knows a little bit more about himself, but he's always been one of those guys, I think, that will never see a therapist and will never get on medication for it because he's afraid it will change his comedy. Yeah. And that was my big thing when I got brain surgery. Right. Because I said to them, I was like, will this make me less funny? And they were like, I don't know. (laughs) Because in their mind, they're like, it's going to save your life. And I, I was like, well, will it make me less funny? And the guy's like, I mean, I don't think so. Why? And I go, well, that's like kind of how I make my living. That's kind of like who I am. And so I don't know that I would want to live if I suddenly wasn't funny anymore. Does that make sense? And they're like, it does not make sense. And then I said, um, what happened? Because it was an elective surgery. I said, well, what, what happens if I don't get the surgery? And the guy's like, You'll probably die in your mid thirties, I would think. And I was like, okay. And I was like, and if I do get the surgery, he's like, well, it'll be good, but there's a one and there's a 10% fatality rate. And I was like, so one in 10 people that get the surgery die. And he was like, yes. And I go, well, I'm a gambling man. Let's do it. And that was, that was the whole thing. And I remember thinking that I like to play craps. And in my mind, I was like, six-sided die that's that's a worse fucking that's a, that's worse than one out of ten I mean, shit come on now you know um and obviously it worked and i wasn't any less funny but, but that was the only way that was the beginning of me understanding let's let's put it this way nick has ocd i have me i'm a brain damaged individual who had a malformation of my frontal lobe and so the rest of my brain picked up the slack so that I could be a regular person. But it, there, I have less brain matter than you, Mike Bridenstine. You know, that's why you're smarter than me. And so with less brain matter, it has to work faster and harder. And so that's why always I have this tireless work ethic. Let's go next thing. Let's do the next thing. And I think in some ways, looking back, this is probably what Nick did. He's like, I had this OCD. I always had to do something different. And I remember that I, now looking back, now that I understand like who I have been my entire life, but just didn't know that. I think I was just like, let's do something else. Let's do the next thing. We got it. Why do we do what we already did? We already did that. Why don't we do something else? And my output of work and like material was just, it was just constant, you know? And I never understood why people needed to sleep. I never understood why people would get tired or take time off from anything. It just simply didn't make sense to me. And it still doesn't like now. And you know, these this mania, you constantly are trying to temper it. And the easiest ways to temper it are alcohol and other depressants. And I wasn't really on medication when I was in Chicago at all. And so I was just drinking all the time after sets because I had wound myself up. And it's like, so how do I pull this back down? And I got into nitrous oxide pretty early in uh street name whippets pretty early in uh 
college, like sophomore year of college, I dated this chick Saturn who did nitrous. And so I did that a little bit. And that was always an ancillary possibility where I was like, shit gets really out of hand. I can do nitrous because that's a real slow type of thing. Um, and at the height of cash living, are talking about this at the height of my mania in Hollywood, I did the critics choice awards, the second one. And I would go on stage and do the whole thing. Cause I was simultaneously doing movies and Silicon Valley and everything and stand up, always stand up, never not doing stand up. And I would go and I would do the bit of the thing and I would run back to my trailer and I would do whippets. I would do nitrous oxide to sort of bring things down at that. And then I'd go back out. So like some people go and do cocaine so that they can be like, all right, let's go and do it. I would be like, I got to bring this down. Oh, a little wow. bit. Otherwise it's going to go, then it's otherwise it's going to get really crazy. And, um, and so that's, that's one of the reasons I think I was able to do a new set all the time, always writing all that. But that was fun because Nick kind of was friends with other people. We were friends, but we didn't become, you know, it's weird. It's like we became incredibly close friends in Chicago, but I would not say that he was one of my close friends in Chicago. I'd say I was friends with Brady Novak, Mark Ratterman, who I lived with, um, Steve O'Harvey, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, you and I were friends, but I think you can attest to the fact that I was just always working. I didn't really hang out much unless it was after the show. Tell you what, I, I didn't think I was good enough to like hang out with most of the comics. When like Kumail or you would come over, I would be like, oh my God, like those guys are so funny. Well, and I think I liked Pete Holmes, but I never spent time with him because he was. I mean, scary. Mike. I was Mike Holmes was the person I thought like, that I thought I could hang out with because I knew. Yeah, that's very funny. You're like between the two Holmes, but I think <laughs> it was funny too because for a little while you guys came as a set. You know what I mean? We moved together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so we. I, I think that was funny to all of us that it was like the Mikes. Yeah, the Iowa Mikes is what they call it. But us. I, what I, that's right. But what I always thought about the two of you guys was that you were incredibly good writers. Like, it's funny that you say Kumail, because in my mind, you were in that category. So, like, if you would say to me, who are, like, the best writers, it would be, like, Kumail, Iowa Mikes, Pete Holmes is pretty good. But I considered you guys, and I went up, when I went over to that writing club, and all of you guys did topic, and then you write and yeah, 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 stuff, yeah. I was so uncomfortable. You I had the funniest like, moment ever there, though. It was And it's probably improvised. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you... You came and you started, you started like whatever the topic was, you go, um, you can't always, it was something, I don't, this wasn't exactly it, but this is like what it was. Like, let's say the topic was like Easter. You go, you can't always change the way a person looks through violence, but you can sure change the way that motherfucker walks. And you, you like looked at us and we're like, what? And then you started reading another one and then you'd like look at us and we're like, What? And then you're like, oh, 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 and you started shaking your notebook and out fell the land of odd Davod's like joke book that he sold for five dollars. It shows in the room fucking when we realized that you had been reading Davod's jokes verbatim, we just fucking erupted. And like everybody was like falling on the floor laughing and you stood up and you go, that's what I wanted to do here. And you fucking left. And I was like, that was like the thing I respected more than anything. That was like the funniest thing that ever happened there. 
Oh my God. That's really funny. And that's something, that's the kind of shit that I was doing at the lion's den. But you know, I'm going to, I'm going to let you in on something. That was something that I would have planned because I felt so, un, I was, uh, that's like a, a sketch. That's like kind of a funny, that's like a, a gag or something. And I would have planned that because I wanted to do something funny and I just wasn't a great writer. And so I just, I remember so much that when I went there, I just felt really uncomfortable because I felt like every topic, you and Holmes would like have three good ideas and one of them would be almost a fully formed joke. Hmm. And so I always, I always felt that I, and I still feel like that. I feel like standups are either a writer or a performer and then they get good at the other thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And you have to kind of push it. So that's how I saw you guys. I thought, and I also just thought you guys were so funny. You were just such funny people. And like the way, you know, it was, you guys were different, obviously, but the way that you laughed was so specific and the jokes that you would say in conversation were so specific. And one thing was that when you got, when did you get there? 2004. And so, you know, by the time that you guys were really on the scene, which would have been 05, like really, really entrenched in the scene, um, I just, I remember thinking also that you guys really like expanded the scene and rounded it out. And that was still at a point where no one was really gonna leave. Like we really had grown into the scene that I think, and you know, I wanted to ask you this. Did you think at a certain point you were like, why would anyone leave? Because the scene is so good and we're learning so much and we're. Yes. I wanted to see if we could all stay there and make it happen there because i didn't I, I think i was so naive too but um then i got it in my head that this was high school this was four years and i'm out so i spent exactly four years there um i think pat i think pat dying and then right around the same time that you got carpoolers it just felt like it was and then like we got management and like a show at ucb like it just felt like get the fuck out of here um and i think that um that that point i remember because i never thought of myself as leaving first i never really and i don't think i did but i do think that it did start to pop off for people and my thing was i always wanted to go to new york yeah but i did not think of leaving and that's why kate broke up with me i was just like i got to get the most out of chicago that i possibly can the only thing and i, I i'll go back to what i was friends with i was very close with cj and pat those were like my buddies from, um, I forget the Irish pub that we all did. It was like a Flanagan's or something like that. Um, Gunther Murphy's? But I remember just, what? Gunther Murphy's? Yeah, Gunther Murphy's. And so I remember kind of doing sets and afterwards, Pat was just so funny. And I would just do shots of Jameson with him and CJ. And being around CJ and Pat, that's some of the hardest that I would ever laugh because they had this like East coast meets Midwest sensibility. And I am from Colorado and did, went to school in DC. And so they represented a kind of different East coast, but I could relate to it because I lived in DC. And then they had this Midwestern sensibility that I could relate to because I was in Colorado. So DC is not considered like an East coast town, like Philly or something like that. 
and Colorado or Denver really, it's not considered like a Midwestern town, but we consider ourselves that. So I really locked in. And then also Pat kind of was a guy where I was like, I can't believe he can get up and just riff about the room and destroy. And he would talk about what he, what happened to him today or an interaction he had with some fucking crazy bitch outside who's drunk and wanted a cigarette and didn't even smoke and you know, whatever. And, and the thing that is interesting, because I work with CJ a lot now. Yeah. And what was interesting to me is I remember that CJ could do the same thing. He would do the same thing. But now he doesn't do that. He'll sometimes riff, um, but he'll say, you know, I don't want to step on, because we'll go and do something that's ridiculous, like go to the Children's Science Museum or whatever in Toledo, Ohio. And he'll kind of jokingly be like, well, you know, you... Um, He'll be like, well, you know, you, uh, um, you know, you're probably going to do that. So I don't want to step on that, you know, and I'll say, well, no, I don't give a fuck. We'll, you know, we have different angles on it. But I think it's that he, back then, he like gave a fuck a lot less, or at least that was what he. <laughs> His whole know. thing was never giving a fuck. I mean, that was kind of. And he still doesn't give a fuck, but in a different way. It's really interesting that he quit drinking. It makes total sense, but you know, most now everybody's quitting drinking. It's like the new, that's like the cocaine of 2020. I quit regular. five years ago. Five years ago. Did you really? Yeah. God. Yeah, I already, whatever anybody's going to drink, I already had it, I think. I probably already drank it. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of different reasons. But Nick and I were talking, and it's like now we're at a point where we just don't drink that much. Like we we really partied on uh, on my birthday, and we uh, I got us a party bus, but just the two of us. So that was hilarious because we were just like sitting in it and talking shop. And the guy brought each of us a, a bottle of Jack Daniels, and I was like, we each had a bottle of Jack Daniels, but just the neck. We just had the neck. So that was our new way of talking about how we drink now. That's like, hilarious, dude. I have my own bottle of Jack Daniels. I just drank the neck. It's really just the neck. Um, but it's true. It's like at this age and just generally, it's like you can't, you either, if you drank like I drank, you either have to stop completely or you sort of have to take it down to a point oh, that yeah. it's not going to end in like liver cancer or something. Um, I, had, I had a couple more just because like I only got five more minutes with you. But uh, I, do you feel like it was special while we were there? Like I've written this whole fucking uh, book about it because it was important to me do you feel like while we were there it was Seattle in the late 80s with the grunge bands or like New York in the 70s Boston was stand up in the 80s do you feel like we were a part of something special no alright dude I gotta get out of here thank you so much uh, this has just been really a lot of fun and uh, I, I'm afraid I can't do another one of these so just good luck with everything and I just really uh, yeah of course I mean it was <laughs> but I think it was, and I don't, I don't think that this is because it was us. A lot of people are going to say, oh, well, it was because, you know, um, you guys were there that you thought it was so special. I think it was more special than Boston. I think it was maybe not, maybe San Francisco at their height. Maybe they, that would have been a place where some pretty incredible people came out of there. But if you look at every, I mean, Rene Gauthier came. And um, 
hung out and did a set when I was in Chicago last. And it was like so fucking fun. And she's so funny and she's working and doing, you know, she's writing weird stuff. She's writing for pro wrestling stuff, right. which I know you don't care much about. <laughs> but anyway, um, I, you know, I think, I think there was, and Renee was so funny because one time they interviewed her and they said, do you think anybody's going to be famous from this scene? And she said, I think TJ Miller. But I think there's a lot of other people. And it's like, yes, I became very famous and that both has garnered me a lot of success and also makes it possible for people to try and destroy your life. So yeah, <laughs> but what really happened is uh, we, there was an output of like people that it really wasn't, didn't matter if it was famous, if you were famous or not. Like Pete Holmes did this podcast that was really like, you know, up there and Conan produced his talk show and that didn't work. So then Apatow did and he had like an autobiographical uh, television show that wasn't as funny as Louis, obviously, but it like was in that realm and he's able to do that. And Kumail, how insane is it that Thomas Middleditch, who I did this two person show with, became the star of a show that I was on that Kumail was on. Yeah. You have three people from that time on one of the most successful comedy shows in the last, I don't even know how long, and the only television show that dealt with Silicon Valley successfully, and then they weren't able to do another one because it was that good. Silicon Valley is going to end up being like a, um, it's hard to say, I don't think like The Office or like, uh, it'll be. it's going to kind of be like Arrested Development, mm -hmm. I think, honestly, because mm -hmm. I think it's, it was that important to that many people and it was that funny. Mm -hmm. um, but even more important than Arrested Arrest Development was about these characters. We had these characters, but it was about this thing that was happening, Silicon Valley, that like now has sort of degraded our society. Yep. It's maybe part of the reason America is going to fail. Like, so that was weird. And it was Mike Judge. Yeah. Was any, you know, the guy I did, Hurwitz, I did a show, uh, a pilot for him. And you know he's he's amazing sure but um mike judge is like one of the most important comedic minds of all time at the beginning when you're saying you never did like uh the big thing i was like you fucking mike judge is like a bigger genius than anybody so he, he's he's kind of he's i mean he's kind of yeah he's definitely goat level shit like i think and he's he's sort of more important when you look at it than someone like Dave Chappelle, because Chappelle had the Chappelle show, which was a very important cultural touchdown. And now he has his uh, standup, right. which is like, you know, he's top five for sure. Yeah. yeah. And some people say he is the greatest of all time. Right. He doesn't make me laugh as much as Bill Burr. Right. You know, and Norm MacDonald, I think was, and I think that's why Chappelle sort of, I think Chappelle knew that norm mcdonald was as good or better than him i think but i think that you know they're different enough i mean this is all just arguing semantics but mike judge did the office space of it the beavis and butthead yeah. of it you know i did extract with him and that's yep. a show, that's a movie that will slowly make its way back into the and he did silicon valley and fucking king of the hill it's like he did so many important things that lasted for so long that and what I liked about him was he and I kind of became friends in the way that Kate and I went and shot guns on his property in Texas 
with Alex Jones. Couple, <laughs> Did you really? Times, yeah. And a couple of times he was, I have a thousand stories about him. We went. Is he regular or is he when he's not, when there's no cameras pointed at him or is he? Yeah, he's a chill guy. He's a super Alex funny. Jones? Oh, Alex Jones? Yeah. yeah he's, he's absolutely, I mean, he, he, he was funny because he was really nervous around Kate because he clearly doesn't do well with women in general. And also Kate took a, she had a 50 caliber rifle and she shot a bullseye and then they gave her an M16 and she shot another fucking bullseye. Did she have and experience with it or is she just no, natural? Uh, no, that's just like Kate. So sometimes things happen like that. And he was, anyway, he was so weird, but Mike judge, he's a fucking lunatic and has contributed a lot of bad things to our, our world. But I didn't know that at the time he was just, Mike judge thought he was one of the better entertainers. Alex Jones just made him laugh really hard. That's why sure. I got him over. Sure. Um, but Mike sat down at the piano. He had a piano at his place. And he started playing the piano. Um, and it was just me and Kate in the room because we were getting some Lone Star beer. Great, Siri. Thank you. What set it off? Is this for the end? Is this for the end of this podcast? This this first podcast? Yeah. He sat, he sat down and he started playing a concerto or something. And at the end, Kate's really cultured. So she, she goes... What was that? Was that Chopin or was that Vivaldi? And Mike was like, oh, no, no, that's just like something I, you know, came up with or whatever. And he was very humble. You know, he, he was unassuming about it. He wrote it. So he, he had written this piece of piano, a concerto, that Kate thought was one of the great composers. So that's how smart he is. Wow. And I, I never knew that he had played... Uh, piano and I don't think he ever would have done that if we weren't like at his house but it's like that's the other lucky thing for me is I've worked with these people that to me are, are like like Mike Judge Steven Spielberg Michael Bay Bridenstine I've just been really really lucky to kind of um get to learn from some of those people but here's what I will say that right all those names that i just named are just like crazy name drop absolutely the zenith the absolute highest that you can get um and i do think that i felt the same way and feel the same way about the chicago scene that i really felt like i was looking at people that i just couldn't believe that they were so funny and i didn't even think like What's going to happen to all of us? Which of us is going to make it? Which that was not in my mind. I was always like, what's the best comedian that I could ever become? How do I become good at as many different disciplines of comedy as I could? And how do I spend as much time watching these people as I possibly could? And if I'm going to go to uh, Mike Bridenstine and Mike Holmes writing club, what is the bit that I'm going to do that will make it less embarrassing that I can't write as well as these guys. And it just, it, it really was like, yeah, it was special, but it, it, um, I think what's so interesting is I could think it was, it, it was really special to all of us and it felt like such a group of friends. And so I'll kind of end with this and then let's definitely talk again. Cause I just been talking, 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 yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, uh, I remember so clearly 
that Kumail was on stage and Brady Novak and I had our drinks and we were right in that hallway with the two friars mm-hmm. at the lion's den. Yeah. And we were watching Kumail. And I think Pete was going up next or had just gotten off and Nick had yet to go up. Uh, and I think I had gone up, but we we're both having drinks and watching Kumail and Brady turns to me and he goes, you know, this is the best. This is like the best it's ever going to be. I'll never get better than this. And I remember thinking, why would you say that? Like, that's not true. Why? That's such a weird thing to say. It's such a fatalistic way of looking at life. But when he said that, I remember kind of knowing why he said it. Because even though I don't think it's true, I mean, look at us now. Now we're like married to incredible people and doing these things for a living and like taking control of our own like output, creative output, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I don't want to go back there. I'm not a guy who's like, oh man, high school was the best, you know, never got any better. But I remember so clearly being like, I understand why he's saying that because it's uh, in some ways it is true. Let's do another one because I want to talk to you about more stuff. And what I wanted to do, I don't know if you've done this with other people, but what would be really cool is for us to go down a list of all the people that you're writing about. Oh, I've got it. I've got it right here. I was going to hit you with like Jay Harris just for fun because throwing shit at TJ Miller would be like Diamond. the most fun like ever. Diamond Jay Harris. So let's let's do that. Let's right now, let's text and figure out next week is Kate's birthday, my Kate's birthday. Yes. And um, I'm trying to get to LA. I'm doing Brea eventually. Okay. But pretty soon I'm going to go to LA because I, I shot two stand-up specials in three weeks. Two separate Santa specials. Who's directing? Jeff? Um, this kid, Arnold Aldridge, who I met through the Goreburger guys. Okay. And he's excellent. But, you know, yes, he's directing. But I sort of, you know, I, I kind of, I, I was using him for something else. And I was like, what am I doing? Let's just shoot specials. I have like three specials in me. So we shot two. So I'm trying to come end of June, but it'll probably be like mid-July. Okay. Um, if you want to get together in person. Sure. But let's do, let's do this on like... I'll text you right now. I'm going to look at my thing and text you right now. Okay. Okay. Cool, man. Uh, well, say, say this hello. This is great. It's yeah, so dude, good to yeah, see you. Absolutely. All right, dude. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Later. Yeah, that is TJ Miller. Please click follow. Please give me all of the stars. Once again, the Patreon is patreon.com forward slash brighter. They say that word of mouth is the best form of advertising. If you like this show at all, Please tell people and come see me in Chicago. Thank you for listening. R.I.P. Michael Clark Duncan. Light.